Welcome to the NIHR Dementia Researcher podcast, brought to you by DementiaResearcher.nihr.ac.uk, in association with Alzheimer's Research UK and Alzheimer's Society, supporting early career dementia researchers across the world. Hi everyone, welcome to the Dementia Researcher podcast. For those of you in for the long haul, I'm Associate Professor Yvonne Couch, and I'm an Alzheimer's Research UK Fellow at the University of Oxford. And once again, if you're joining us today for the first time, you're at the end of a mini-series on postdoc life. So jump back and listen to the first two episodes where you'll hear some tips for early career researchers and how being a perpetual postdoc affects the science and the people. As before, I'm joined by Dr. Kamar Amin Ali, Research Associate at the University of Glasgow, Dr. Kritika Sumsi, Senior Research Fellow at King's College London, and Dr. Sarah Kate-Smith, Research Fellow at Sheffield Hallam. Now... I'm going to be bold and say today we are going to fix everything. So we're going to start with a pretty brave and fairly opinionated statement set out in the ironic form of an undergraduate essay title. I don't think universities are particularly interested in students. Discuss. Who wants to jump in? I'll go then. Um, (laughs) I'm going to be pretty bold here as well. I think... Some universities are more teaching focused and some are more research focused. And the teaching focused universities maybe generate the majority of their income from students. So I'd be as bold to say that universities provide, those universities provide a better experience. So the research focused universities maybe tend to generate more income through research funding. Uh, And I realise that's a huge generalisation, but I've worked in both Met universities and Russell Group universities, and I found that neither emphasise the importance of teaching and research, and the focus tends to be on one or the other, in my experience. Yeah, and I think at Oxford that's definitely the case. So in theory, the idea here is that the students are taught by the forefront researchers, the, the, the people who are at the cutting edge of the science. And whilst I love bringing my work and the work that I do to my tutorials and saying, oh, actually, this is what we found out. And this is you know what's interesting. And this is how it applies to the stuff that you're studying now. I don't necessarily think that everybody does that. And I think that what happens a lot of the time is the the people who are really at the forefront are all of the big wig professors who have all of the money and what happens is the teaching ends up trickling down to the people who want to make a good impression and the people who want to get experience do you think that it's anything to do with kind of the reputation or of the university in terms of the prestige because sometimes those more prestigious universities they they can rely heavily on their reputation to bring in students. They don't necessarily have to invest so much in uh, the teaching experience or the student experience. And so they can focus much more on generating research income and supporting research and investing in research facilities because they can just rely on their reputation to to bring in the students if if they've got a, you know, particularly the, the really prestigious ones, not just Um, Oxford and Cambridge, but places like Durham, Exeter, you know, York as well. These are universities that have a really, really strong prestigious reputation. And I think they'll never struggle to to recruit students. 
Yeah, that's almost certainly the case. And this is probably my ignorance of the situation, but I don't, I'm not even entirely sure how output is measured or whether the student experience is even a thing that's considered. It's almost like their measurement of success is how many people pass and how many people get decent jobs afterwards or how many people go into further education. It's not necessarily actually, did your students, did they actually learn anything? Did they come out as different people? Did you improve their lives in any way? Um, And you could almost rote teach or make minimal effort. And I feel like it, it would make no difference. But, but for me, when I'm teaching, I, I almost don't want to do that because I don't feel like that, like you say, I don't feel like that gives them a good experience. And I don't feel like that allows them to develop as, as, as people. Um, I think that uh, it depends on the, um, on the institution. And like I'm saying that, when I was doing my PhD, we were expected to teach and uh, we were expected to teach postgrad students as well. So in the school that I was in, they didn't have undergrad students, so it was only postdoc. Um, but we were expected to communicate uh, in, in teaching um, every week. And now I'm 100% research um, and I teach uh, I don't get paid for it, of course, um, but I teach because I really, really want to. And I have to find the time in my schedule, uh, which means something else will go uh, or something else will be late or something else, you know, because I'm 100% research. And actually the funder would perhaps have an issue um, if I were, if they knew. And at the end of the day, you know, to be an academic, you have to do more. You have to embed yourself and do some teaching and do some seminars and do some workshops, you know, in order to be an all-round academic. So, you know, I think that um, there's two sides, but I do believe that we uh, we are expected, certainly as researchers, to do teaching as well. I confess I don't know exactly what the balance in Kings is. I don't know whether um, I, I feel... I feel they emphasize the teaching when I am teaching and I feel like they emphasize the grant income when I'm applying for a grant. So I think I'm not very sure what they think is more important or less important. My The setup I'm in currently is a research unit. So we are primarily, um, we're not a teaching institute. We are very much a research focused one. We're all on what is a research only contract, but to progress up the King's ladder, promotions pathways, whatever it is called, you need to have some teaching experience, but we aren't being paid by Hefke. So there's this very weird intersection where we are not expected to teach, but when we apply for a promotion, it should be somewhere on our CV. So like Sarah, I do teaching and like Cam actually, I do teaching, I don't get paid for it. And the something that suffers is me or my health or because I fit it in and end up staying up till midnight finishing the report I should be finishing on in my day job when I'm actually have been teaching, for instance. So I feel like the promotions pathways and a lot of these universities expect you to, or in another job, they expect you to have all these kind of different uh, credentials and this experience, but a lot of universities don't support this. And this whole research only contract has become an easy way out where they say, we don't want you to teach, we don't expect you to teach, but then it doesn't allow you the flexibility to move to another job if you so choose, or even move up your own promotions pathways in the same institute itself. So I feel like there is a big misalignment with what they expect of you and what they ask you to do. So I think you've made a really important point and I'm actually slightly horrified that all of you have specifically said, I do teaching, but of course I don't get paid for it. And I think that's 
absolutely horrendous. And I'm now feeling guilty by saying that I only do teaching if I get paid for it, because I, I don't think that the university should be undervaluing teaching like this. I think it's, I think it's fairly horrendous. Do you think that there is a, do you, do you think it's, there, there, do you think there should be some kind of change in the institutional structure maybe? Do you think, so Kritika, you work in, you've just said you work in like an institute and it's, it's research only. So do you think there's going to be more of a swing towards research only institutions and that the teaching will be done almost separately? And do you think that would be a good thing or do you think that would be, do you think that wouldn't work? So I, I'm the, my research institute itself is set up like a consultancy. So I think we've been told that it's the business model doesn't support you to be. A, so this is another thing that the business model of my research institute doesn't allow me to be a permanent member of staff. So it's that whole instability of contracts, which seems like an easy get out from the business model of why was the business model not set up to be able to encourage people to be permanent members of staff. So. I, I think if I wanted to stay in my research unit and progress up, the research unit is part of King's. So it isn't working independently. So the promotions pathways will subscribe to what the King's role is, which is requires you to be having some PhD students and teaching requirements. So I don't understand where this mismatch comes and I'm not senior enough to contest it. I just feel like who is making these decisions? Why was the business model set up in a way that doesn't allow me to be paid for my teaching or me to be required to teach so that then I have time in my week to actually do it. Um, I think I'm seeing more and more lectureships that are either research and teaching or they're advertised as teaching and scholarships. I think that from lectureship onwards, they are kind of distinguishing between those roles where it's almost like 50-50 research teaching and those that are, are going to be much more teaching focused. So they want to invest more time in improving uh, student experience and student learning. Um, but certainly below the lectureship level, um, postdocs, research associates, um, research fellows, I don't know outside of Oxbridge how many people actually get paid for their teaching. Um, it's if you're on a, a research contract, you are contracted just to do that research. And if you're thinking about progressing to lectureship, you're almost seen as taking on these things as extra. Um, but then you feel like you have to take them on if you want to, to progress to being a lecturer. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's that balance between doing what you're kind of employed to do at this level, but then also trying to think about the next step and prepare for that. I also, uh, certainly in the university I work in, it is quite teaching focused. And as a new researcher there, as in uh, started in the summer, they um, they jump on you to teach because they have so many lecturers who are full-time lecturers and are amazing, but they're not researchers. So it's a different experience, certainly teaching research methods, which is what I do. Um, the teaching that the students get from lecturers who are pure lecturers um, is, dare I say, theoretical. Um, and the teaching they get from researchers is more applied. 
I imagine that's 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 my experience anyway. So they do want you as researchers to teach because you're teaching. If you're teaching research methods, you're teaching something that you do every day. Um, but the, you know they don't recognise this in the sense that um, there's probably two researchers in a department um, and twenty lecturers. So you know and that both don't it's not 50 50 so we don't have like Cam was saying we don't have positions that would do 50 percent research 50 percent lecturing because that's the dream but there isn't anything like that you're either a lecturer or a researcher but you'll be pulled in as a researcher to lecture i i feel like a lot of these academic roles that we do or, or yeah all of the academic roles that we do are preparing us for the next step but that next step is not guaranteed so we think we should do a lot of the teaching, a lot of the PPI, a lot of our own writing of papers and all of this extra networking and all of this extra work. But the guarantee of the next promotion or the next job not being there makes it really hard to kind of even justify to yourself to thinking it feels like you're applying for a new job every time you apply for a new grant. So it just feels like there's no guarantee to any of the work we put in. And I think in one of the discussions we had, you said, what does success look like? I think that's it. There's very little returns. We can get returns from our everyday work, from our everyday interactions with other colleagues and conferences we go to and a paper published here. But on a regular basis, there is very little feedback on every extra bit of work that we do as an academic. Yeah, and I feel like so many of the institutions don't, really know what their own focus is and I think that for me that's part of the problem is that do you want me to be good at teaching if you want me to be good at teaching I need to have a little bit more time uh, or I need to stretch my research contract out for longer so when I was working in Denmark they had a really wonderful system set up there where within a department if the department contributed so many hours of teaching time, the university paid for so many hours of a research assistant's time. So the lab that I was in, basically the, the PI, she taught for, I can't remember how many hours a week, but she taught every week during term time. And so for one of every three weeks, she got a research assistant to do whatever she wanted. So this, this lovely lady Louise would turn up and Kate would go, right, this week I need you to do these Western blocks and, and uh, this genotyping and I need you to culture up these cells and I need to cut these brains. And it was just doing all that stuff that she potentially didn't have time to do because she was teaching. And I was like, that's the kind of thing that we really need here because the reality is that it is kind of assumed, like you say, Critica, it's, it's kind of assumed that it's for the next job. And the reality is that that next job is, isn't there but if it is there, we, we do need the experience and we need that kind of like that more rounded CV that they're expecting us to have now. And if you do get there are so many departments at Oxford like yours, which are research only. And so often these people, they don't even have access to teaching. They don't know how they would get that experience if they wanted to. I was lucky I got uh, was lucky or unlucky depending on how you see it I got roped into teaching very early um, but I know lots of people who don't do any teaching which I you know I think is wonderful for them um, because they get all their time to focus on their research but when it comes to their CV it's potentially slightly less well-rounded than it could be but this is we've very firmly been sort of focusing on undergrad teaching but 
we've also we're now kind of I think all three of us at the stage where we're thinking about if we don't already have them maybe having PhD students do you think there's an issue with the current system in terms of getting a PhD student having a PhD student supervising one consistently I actually do have a PhD student which is scary to think of I'm I'm second supervisor um, to a PhD student um, who's in their first year and uh, I feel almost completely unprepared for it um, because I guess you always and, and in other jobs that I've had as well other um, postdoc positions um, you would do a lot of unofficial supervising of PhD students when they would start you'd teach them how to do certain things and they'd come to you for advice and so you do a lot of that unofficial supervision and there is actually a bit of a leap to then becoming an official supervisor even if it's a second supervisor um, and I feel like I'm quite lucky in the sense that being in the position that I am that I've been given that opportunity but at the same time I feel like am I prepared for it and I haven't had anything official training or anything like that that has been done to prepare me for it I think that's the worry isn't it because um I have had a few PhD students and this one uh, I've just got a new one and the PhD will outlast my contract so who's at a loss there they you know they jumped on it because of the topic and they wanted me because of the topic which is fantastic and I'm thrilled to bits to do it but it's the long-sightedness that's lacking. What happens when I leave? Um, and what will happen to that PhD student's, you know, thesis and, and, and what have you? Does it, does it mean that I do that in my spare time then? Or in the next role, probably for a different university? Did that not come up when it was first being decided? Because it's such an important point, right? And you just think, how is this not come up from the student point of view, from the university? How has it been signed off? Did it come up at all? It didn't come up at all. And I, I think as well that it's, um, you know, I, I do end up feeling grateful. And I know that I'm uh, working and getting paid and have a contract, but I feel grateful to have a job. And, and, I, and I know I shouldn't. I've worked really hard for it. So why shouldn't I have a job? You know, but I do think that not rocking the boat is a bit of a, a personality trait of mine. I want to just you know, keep my head down, don't rock the boat, don't make things, you know. So to, for me to say, oh, I will we'll do this um, uh, supervision as long as you extend my contract or, or you know, I, I didn't feel in a position. I just wanted to uh, to get the job and, and, and do my best, really. So, no, it didn't come up. And um, that's that will be on me definitely by the end of it. And I think that's part of the part of the problem. So there are two points I really want to want to jump on from from what you and Kelma are saying one is that why are institutions not asking these questions why are institutions I feel like now the only way that people at our level can supervise a PhD student is as a second supervisor to someone in a permanent academic job and the institutions should be thinking about that but does that mean and this is a controversial question do we think that there are just too many PhD positions at universities? Do we need fewer PhD students? I don't think we need fewer PhD students because if we're thinking about progression through academia, 
people will filter out into different careers along that path. And we need people to work in academic publishing or for these research funders. These jobs are actually PhD level jobs. You like when I worked for the NC3Rs as a program manager, I needed a PhD for that job. So I think that um, I, I don't have an issue with the number of um, PhD students that we have, but I do have an issue with um, those who do want to progress in academia that that it's not supported and that when we don't have the support in that progression i think there's a lot of support for phd students but that kind of diminishes the further along that academic track you get yeah and i think we mentioned in a previous episode that there is i think it was chris i think chris it was you who said that there is increasingly support for early career researchers which is lovely, don't get me wrong. I really like the fact that they're, that they're getting support. But as I've mentioned, I think a lot of people almost do this first postdoc to test the waters. And they will often leave and go and do something else because they've decided that actually it's not for them. And it's almost at this level when you've been a postdoc for like seven, eight, nine, almost 10 years that you do need support because you've clearly made that decision. You've clearly said this is what I love, this is where I want to be. And I feel like institutions need to recognize and value that. But I don't know what they're recognizing and valuing. And I think that's that's part of the problem is that, that I don't know whether they're recognizing and valuing the money or whether they're recognizing and valuing any teaching input that, that we have. I think going back to what we were saying in one of the earlier podcasts, um, there is this expectation that every postdoc, or if you do a PhD, you become a postdoc and stay, you're going to want to be a professor. And I think, you know, that's an assumption. It's a huge assumption. I don't want to be a professor and I put my hands up there. And I think people are horrified when I say that especially funders, and uh, because they think, well, there's no investment there then. But I do think that it's independence. That's what I want. I want to follow my own path through academia. I've done my training. I've worked on the postdoc contracts. But now um, the the short-term contracts don't allow this research independence and job security. And rather, the importance of my role is delivering somebody else's research project in a way that they want it delivering, you know. And I think in order to undertake my own research, I'd need to hold a permanent position. Yet permanent positions are rare unless you have a track record of attracting funding, uh, which is a challenge when you don't have a permanent position. <laughs> so, so it's Catch-22, you know, although it's understandable as universities, like we've said, um, are businesses and they have to invest in people who can attract the funding you know um, so it's not necessarily about how many journal articles or book chapters you write um, or how published you are but rather how good you are at writing successful funding bids I think that's my issue I feel like the new drive that has happened in a couple of like research grants to encourage first-time applicants to become a PI or this whole concept of a co-PI is quite supportive. And in lots of ways, I kind of think it may be the next step into being an independent researcher where you can be a co-PI because again, at King's, there is this stipulation that you need a certain amount on your contract after the grant ends, which then doesn't always tie up with if you're not a permanent member of staff. But 
a core PI enables you to be a little bit more as an independent researcher while having the support of someone who has a track record that they can demonstrate. But I don't know how well it works in practice, whether it needs to be someone you really get on with or whether it can just be a collaborator relationship, really. Well, that's an interesting point. And actually, it harks back to something that you said, Cam, in terms of training to be in these roles. So it's really useful to have to be co-PI on, on a larger grant because it almost allows you to learn how to do that as you sort of progress up. And I think for me, it's really important to do that with someone that you trust with, with a mentor, with someone who's really going to help you through the process rather than go write this grant for me. Bye-bye. See you next week. Um, And I think, so Cam, you were saying that you're, you've been, you've been made this second supervisor, but they've sort of just, but well, they've not made you be a second supervisor. I'm assuming you've volunteered for it, but they, they've sort of put you in this role and then there is almost no support and no, you know, recognition of whether you're almost, whether you're doing a good job or not. Like, do you think that is, a, do you think we need more training? And do you think that is something that universities can or should be paying for? Or do you think we should just be sort of, you know, left to sink or swim? I feel like, um, it's such a lottery, isn't it? Because I feel like um, some kind of formal training would be good that could give you some like core skills and some core um, understanding of what is required of you as a supervisor. But then at the same time, I think if you were, and this goes back to when we talked about the type of environment being really, really important and the type of supervisor that you have being really important, Because I think if you were working in a group where you had that support from, you know, if we take, you know, a situation where you're a second supervisor and your your PI is the primary supervisor of that student. um, If you have a lot of support and from your um, PI, who is the primary supervisor, you can learn a lot from them. They can give you tips and they can invest that time in, in helping you. But so often PIs don't have that time. Um, And even though you might be the second supervisor, you might actually be the one who ends up investing most time in the supervision or at least the direct supervision of that student. Um, So I feel like, yeah, even if you didn't have that formal support, that formal training, if you had a really, really good environment and a really supportive PI, you would be getting that anyway. Um, But you just need to learn from someone and it's not just good for you it's good for the PhD student as well yeah you sort of pick up knowledge by osmosis I had I I was I was lucky enough to have three PhD supervisors or again unlucky enough uh, and they all had very very different approaches to supervision and so what I've done with my first PhD student was try to like distill the aspects of them that I liked and ignore the aspects that I didn't so one of them was very much she wasn't she didn't do this on purpose but she was very much a pastoral supervisor so she sat down at the beginning of every meeting that we had and just went how are you and it that sort of gave me the opportunity to either leap straight into my science or to go actually I'm really miserable right now because nothing's working and you know I just got that bit of a moan and so I I really liked that and I tried to take that on to my my other students because my sort of primary PhD supervisor never did that. It wasn't that he wasn't interested. It just didn't occur to him. Like I could be miserable and he probably wouldn't have noticed. Um, And I think 
I try and take aspects of sort of everything that I've seen, but there are still people who do, who do this sort of almost the opposite. They're like, well, I suffered. So my PhD students have to suffer too. And I think that's just an unbelievably terrible attitude. But I think part of the problem for me is that we're, so Cam, you and I are in the same position in that I have been supervising students, but only as co-PI because of the contract issues. But I know that I have friends who are on slightly longer contracts. So a friend of mine managed to get one of the five-year fellowships. So within that five-year period, she can have a PhD student. But then the trouble is, if she's the principal PI, she's still junior. And at this point, there's this pressure for her to produce and to be successful and to publish. And so that almost trickles down to any PhD student she gets. So my supervisors had permanent contracts. And I'm not going to say it means that I was allowed to mess around because that's wrong. Um, But I was allowed to do experiments that like failed and I was allowed to do things that I was like, maybe this might be interesting and then spend six months doing something that turned out to not be very interesting. And I think that is so important for scientific creativity. You're not going to get that, you know, novel ideas and things unless you're allowed to play around a little bit. And I think if you have this very short-term PhD like contract thing, um, because you're being supervised by someone who also has a short-term contract, there's this pressure to produce on the PhD student, which I think is, is not necessarily a good thing either. I think something you said really resonated there with me, Yvonne, and it's about these traditional academic roles that are so fixed and rigid um, and dictated by funding, I think, rather than experience and dedication and passion. Um, you know, what if we really do want to dedicate our careers to one thing and to making lives better for people? And, or, you know, what, what if that is it? Why do we have to be... Um, uh, you know, reduced to how, you know, lack of funding or, or, or how well we write funding applications. Um, and I think it's a, it's a bit of a, 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 a dilemma. And I think the system is old fashioned and needs a refresh. I have an opposite point of view where I sometimes think that the more senior I get, someone says, you need to have a niche. You need to be good at one thing. And I think, why? Why can't I just do lots of different things? And get stimulated by different experiences and different research projects rather than focus just on one topic and get better and better at it, which I recognize has its value, but you learn a lot from just doing different things as well. So I totally agree with you, Sarah, but I feel like there's a flip side to my personality sometimes, which is the opposite. Exactly. And as part of our sort of tips for early career researchers, I asked lots and lots of friends, you know, what would you have wanted to know when you were an early career researcher? And one of my friends said that she wished she'd found her niche earlier. And I was like, I don't know whether you want to find your niche early, because I think that doesn't allow you to have lots of different experiences and it doesn't allow you to distill those experiences and go, actually, no, I didn't enjoy doing that. Actually, no, I didn't enjoy doing that. And, and Cam, I know that you did, sort of many different projects doing many different things. Uh, do you think that the system is set up to allow you to do that? Or do you think it's becoming more and more restrictive? It's tough because um, I do um, value the fact that I've had been able to work on different projects because of 
moving around and I mean that in a way it's almost like one of the benefits of the the, the precarious contracts that I've had is that I've been almost forced to move but it's meant that I've had the opportunity to work on these different projects and learn different skills um but the downside of that is I haven't been able to stay anywhere long enough to develop my niche and to develop like where do I fit into this I think that's really important and one of the things that I think is missing here from a funder's point of view and from potentially a university point of view is longevity in terms of a research project. Like if everything is reduced to this three-year niche, then you, you don't have the opportunity to like persist and pursue an idea in any kind of depth or with any kind of you know, decent um, reproducible way. So there's this huge reproducibility crisis in science. And I think part of the problem is because you get this three-year postdoc and then you leave and then maybe somebody else comes into the same group and does a three and then they spend, you know, six months essentially optimizing something that you optimized a year before, but they don't know about it because you've left. And there's just not that longevity in terms of any of the projects. And in terms of dementia research, because this is a dementia research podcast, that's so important because so many, so many of the models that we need to use are like two years long in terms of animal research but even in terms of people research if you're looking at sort of prognostic biomarkers for example you're going to want to be looking at these people for years and years and years at a time and the idea of having a whole bunch of different people rolling through those projects just for me financially doesn't make sense and doesn't make sense in terms of in terms of the project I again I I know there can be a three-year postdoc, but in health and social care research that I work in, projects have been much, much shorter. I think three years sounds like a luxury. I know so many projects are just a year, year and a half. And I think that lends itself to, you. before you've even begun, you're looking for the next grant and you just think, how is this adding to science? How is this adding to research? This is really just a job after job after job rather than slow scholarship or any of the beauty of research, which is mulling over a problem, finding a finding the solution as it were, and taking it forward. There's no time to even think because you just kind of go through this treadmill of finding the next grant. Yeah. And I worry that the people who are then senior enough to be permanent are not necessarily enmeshed in the research anymore. So they're, they're slightly detached from the literature. Don't get me wrong, some of them are amazing, but some of them are slightly detached. So there are things that they, they might not know because they're not doing that day to day and they don't appreciate you know, how long techniques take or what techniques are available. And so they have the permanency, but they don't necessarily have the scientific insight anymore. And I think for me, one of the, one of the most interesting conversations I had was with a chap who used to work at the MRC and he just, he made it a really basic statement and it was so plain that I, I, I almost laughed. He just said, I don't understand why science is not a permanent job. And it's not. And I don't think, I don't think there's any way of that we can fix that, but I think the universities and the funders need to, need to talk to each other because something that you said, Sarah, I thought was really important is that, that you said you don't want to be a professor. You just want to pursue some independent research. Does that mean you want to have a group or do you just want to pursue your own research or how, how do you foresee, like if in an ideal world, if I gave you a squillion pounds, what would you do? I think, um, 
uh, in my experience, the professors I've worked for don't do the work that I want to do because they're higher level and so they oversee. And I think I would love a team or being part of a team um, that we could, like you said, Yvonne, pursue those avenues that you never have time to do in, uh, in a, a contract in contract work. I don't think it should be assumed that everyone wants to be a professor, um, but I do think that um, it should be assumed that people have a passion and want to see things through. Uh, I, I just find it's all, you know, we're, we're losing really good people in academia because um, uh, of job insecurity, you know, um, and I think it's something that is, is essential that we look at really. I think it's something Kamit said the last time we had the pre-chat, which was, I think it works differently in a lab setting where one person can be an expert at a particular methodology or a technician or something that brings a technical skill. And I feel like the more senior someone gets in academia, you do more rather badly. I wish I could just stay as a qualitative methodologist, not aspire to a professorship just because that's the gold standard, but be better and better at what I want to do and contribute my knowledge just to the to every research study going. Whereas it's not become like that. It's become to be a PI, you have to do everything or prove you can do everything. And why is that the end goal? Yeah, I don't know many people who actually care about becoming a professor. Like I certainly couldn't care less whether I become a professor or not. It's just not something that I care about. But I agree that I, I really feel that it is a waste to have really highly skilled scientists driven out of jobs because they might not be interested in progressing up that academic career ladder. So for example, I think we mentioned this before where um, if, for example, in, in my group where I work, if we wanted to run like a pilot fMRI experiment, then we would either need to employ somebody who already has those skills or we would need to spend time and really invest in learning them ourselves, which can be so, it's such a difficult skill to learn anyway, but to invest the time in it, which we don't have. And I just feel like, imagine if you had somebody who was maybe at postdoc level and they were so highly skilled and knowledgeable, not just on that piece of equipment and you know how to troubleshoot with that piece of equipment, but also in the experimental design aspect, then, I really feel that that would advance a lot of projects because it stops that gatekeeping of certain methods and certain techniques. And it allows a lot more fluid collaborations because you don't have that barrier there of, I don't have the skills to do that. Therefore I can't do that experiment. Um, and I really feel that a, a role like that, I, I know some universities do have roles like that, but I don't feel that many do. And I feel like a lot of postdocs would probably like to have a job like that because not it's it's different to what a technician because you're not just doing technical work you're also contributing to the research design and the research analysis and using your skills there as well but you're just collaborating on many many different projects that people are bringing to you so it kind of works well from both perspectives both that person that has that skill and also research groups coming to them to use that skill I think that uh, what the system is telling me is that I'm not worth a permanent contract. If I was a lecturer and I could get a lectureship because I have the qualifications and the teaching experience, 
um, I am worth a permanent contract. So why aren't researchers, postdoc researchers worth a permanent contract? That would be my question, really. Yeah, I agree. I, I feel like that's something that universities and, and funders need to, to think about answering. Um, but in terms of what you said, Cam, I think for me, what universities are often lacking is this, what I call so, like scientific middle management. I, I have friends who genuinely don't, they have no interest in running labs, but they're very good at what they do. And they like doing what they do and they like teaching other people, you know, the kind of skills that they have. And, but they don't really like writing grants. They don't really like, you know, but I feel like they should be given the opportunity to almost spread those skills around. And I think that kind of, if we have that kind of setup, it could allow, if we have that kind of setup and more permanency, it would almost allow for more collaborations. If I knew that there was someone in Nottingham who had access to an MRI machine that did a very specific type of sequence who was an expert in something, and I knew she was going to be there forever, and I was going to be here forever, and then we could set something up and we could you know, run with a project together. But I don't know whether I'm going to be here in two years and she doesn't know whether she's going to be there in two years. So realistically, it means that a project that could potentially be interesting, exciting, is going to potentially die on its ass because neither of us know where we're going to be. And it means that those skills are going to be lost, the very specific skills that she has, the very specific skills that I have. And I think it's a massive waste. And we are, what we're ending up doing is almost wasting money learning. We're reinventing the wheel with all these new short-term contracts. We're just reinventing the wheel. I think it's a huge waste of money. And I think that is something that the, the funders really need to think about. Like, is it important for someone? Is, is this person progressing knowledge or are they just going to be sort of starting again, essentially, and then starting again in another three years time? And ironically, one of the things that we said at the beginning that we really liked about academia was different kinds of people in the environment. Whereas I feel like the more senior people get, it's kind of driven out of us because you're expected to do more, do it in a quicker time frame, be more, be more places, and your specific skill set gets diluted because you are expected to take on a lot more of these other roles. Yeah, and it almost for me, I know that Sarah, you said something about um what you needed to get a grant was to be a good salesperson. And I feel almost as you go up the ladder, it's almost selecting for good salespeople and good salespeople are not necessarily good scientists. I'm not saying that they're never good scientists. I'm just saying someone who can, uh, there's a very rude word that I really want to say right now and I'm not going to, but they can, they can, you know, talk the talk and it doesn't necessarily get followed up with any action. And I worry that that's not necessarily the way we want to go within science. Can I make a quick point there? Um, just that uh, I have um, uh, done some um, funding applications that are based on people living with dementia's uh, opinions, review, they, they have reviewed the funding applications and have being very clear that this funding is required. Um, but then the actual decision 
um, is put is down to me going to interview and being interviewed by a panel of 10, 12 senior academics and then them deciding that no, that, that I'm not the candidate for this fellowship or that I'm not, the, you know, but what about those people living with dementia who reviewed my um, proposal and said that, yes, they needed this in their lives or, or what have you. That's a bit of a, a dilemma for me. It doesn't sit well. No, I can imagine. And so many, there's, there was a great study in 2014, the names of whom I cannot remember, but basically it said that peer review panels are terrible at predicting future success. It may as well be a lottery. Um, and it's for a lot of these fellowships, you have to turn up for interview and I'm, I, I interview terribly. I get nervous and flustered and sweaty and it's horrible. And I don't perform as well as if I could have 12 individual chats with all of those senior researchers. And I'm sure I would come across better, not confident, but I'm sure I would come across better than having to stand in front of all 12 of them, you know, 95% of whom are checking their emails anyway and try and sell my science within sort of a 10 minute window. And I appreciate that as a skill that I'm sure we have to have, but I feel like if somebody has that skill already and is very good at it, then it's, it's gonna, it's gonna select for their science over my science. And we don't necessarily know how to judge science well. And we all come to these panels with our own biases and, you know, I know what I find exciting and it may not necessarily be what Cam finds exciting or what Critica finds exciting. And so it's difficult to rectify um, at, at the interview level and then and then at the funders level. So one of the things that I would be keen to get everyone's opinion on is whether we think the changes that need to happen need to happen at the level of the funder, or do we think they need to happen at the level of the university or both? I think the funders are trying. I really think this move, there's been a big push in social care research. So I work in social care research. So I do feel like the funders have reached out a little bit more. I think this whole drive to make people that this application to be a co-PI is a movement that I fully support just because I would benefit from it. And I think, there are a lot of charities that I know are also allowing early career researchers to be PIs for the first time. So I definitely think the funders are trying. I don't see the same level of awareness or support coming from universities. So maybe because Kings is such a big behemoth, it finds it hard to kind of take these opinions on board. So maybe that's the reason, maybe smaller universities are trying harder, succeeding more, but I feel like funders are trying more than universities in my opinion. I completely agree. So uh, there are from my perspective, a whole swathe of things that I cannot apply for because the funders, are, like you say, the funders are trying. And so the way that they're trying is, is they're sort of giving you longer pots of money with the idea that the pot of money sort of trails off towards the end and that your institution picks it up. Um, but I work in a, a bit of the university that is not teaching focused and therefore they have no real need to keep me because I don't contribute anything other than money to this department. If I worked in a teaching department, it would be different because then I could say, actually, look, this will trail off. I can pick up a bunch of teaching and a bunch of lectures and stuff. And so it's in your benefit to keep me around. But in this department, there's no benefit for them. So they won't let me apply for those grants. So I think it's, it's, it, it needs to be a conversation, I think, between the institutions and the funders. 
And I think hopefully someone might be listening who has opinions or can do something. I, I desperately hope that is the case. Well, I think you'll agree we've definitely fixed everything. Um, if nothing else, hopefully someone important is listening and they can crack on and do something. Anyone out there who might be struggling with anything, the Dementia Researcher is a great resource for many of your research needs. It has funding calls and job ads, but it also has podcasts like this one covering all sorts from scientific methods to molecular biology to conference roundups, as well as blogs from people like Cam and I on topics like mental health, stroke and animal models of disease. So for the final time, I'd like to thank our panelists, Kritika, Cam and Sarah. Before we round up this one, does anyone have anything they'd like to plug? Charity runs, bake sales? Cam, I just mentioned you're a regular blogger now. Any hints on topics that might be coming up from you? Well, um, I think by the time this goes live, um, I'll be doing, um, I'll have a blog out that will be on similar themes around this. So that, that blog will probably be a nice introduction into this podcast. Excellent. Good to hear. Uh, anyone else, anything fun going on in your lives that you want to share with the world? Nope. That's fine. I am a regular blogger with Dementia Researcher and I have extremely strong opinions. So if anybody wants to listen or read those, feel free to jump on the website. All of our Twitter bios are somewhere on the Dementia Researcher website. So again, have a look at those, have a jump on social media, see what we post about. Once again, thank you all for listening and remember to like and subscribe to the Dementia Researcher at Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. And for the last time, stay safe and keep researching. Brought to you by DementiaResearcher.nihr.ac.uk in association with Alzheimer's Research UK and Alzheimer's Society, supporting early career dementia researchers across the world.